This is Henry Munter. And this is Rich Peterson. And you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Recognizing the, the lessons that were delivered from them and trying to remember those and share them is like a big part of, of what we try to do in our guide meeting and in our guide culture. If given the chance to mitigate our hazard with one technique, all of us would choose first to, to um, use the technique where you fly away from the hazard as far away as you can and then tiptoe your way back. You are tuned into episode 5.3 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance, the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a good fall out there, wherever you are. Maybe you're getting those last-minute fall desert trips in. Mountain biking sure is good in a lot of places. Or maybe you're in your small mountain community and watching some of the basal facet layers start to develop on the higher elevation, shady aspects. Wherever you are, I hope you and your families are doing well, staying healthy, being happy, keeping things in perspective. Hopefully you vote this week if, the, if you're listening to this in the United States. Um, such an amazing right that, that many people, I think, take for granted. So get out there and vote. Probably the next thing you should do after you vote this year is look through all your backcountry riding gear. So your shovel, your probe, your beacon... And you're probably saying, Caleb, what should I be looking for when I'm looking at this gear in the fall time? Well, when I look at my shovel, I make sure to carefully inspect all the welds to make sure none of the welds are breaking. I also look for all the push tab pieces to make sure those are free and clear and in good working order. Then I move on to my probe and I go ahead and assemble the probe make sure it functionally locks and then disengage that lock and that should be a nice smooth motion and then i i look at all the joints uh, um in the in the wire that's holding the the probe the avalanche probe together make sure there's not any wear and tear to that wire all this gear does have a shelf life especially if you're using it frequently um and so careful and often inspection of that gear um, can be a vital step when i move on to my beacon first thing i do is hopefully you've taken the batteries out during the summer um, but i'll put brand new fresh batteries in um, and i make sure that there's no corrosion in those battery ports right Uh, many of these beacons are going to take firmware updates And so oftentimes when you turn your beacon on, it'll give you a version of the firmware, depending on the manufacturer. But make sure you check with the manufacturer 
or your local retailer to make sure that you have the most updated software, the most updated firmware for your beacon. Um, there, there are definitely some recalls going on for uh, certain Avalanche beacons. And so again, check with your local retailer or the manufacturer to make sure that, that your beacon is the most updated and that it has not been affected by a recent recall. So those are some things that I would do just to um, start off your gear inspection. Of course, looking at your airbag pack, if you have an airbag pack, um, maybe going ahead and deploying that old cylinder from last year and then getting that freshly refilled. Um, I think that's a pretty good idea. Um, other things to do is check out the schedule for the snow and avalanche workshops, many of which are virtual this year. So go ahead and sign up for that. Um, I will say that it seems like avalanche courses are filling up extremely fast this year. So if you're thinking about enrolling in an avalanche course um, and you haven't already, I would probably jump on that as soon as possible. And of course, you could find a complete list of avalanche education course providers, as well as that Snow and Avalanche workshop schedule on the A3 website, www.americanavalancheassociation.org. And while you're on that site, if you're in the market for a job, there is a complete listing of professional avalanche positions that are being flown right now. Looks like there's some pretty intriguing opportunities here. There's a, a great uh, avalanche forecasting position down at Mount Shasta with our friends at Mount Shasta Avalanche Center. Um, there's also a avalanche forecaster position opening up in the West Central Montana Avalanche Center out of Missoula, Montana. Those are all closing kind of in the next couple weeks here. Um, there's also a forecast position with YDOT out of Jackson. So um, definitely some cool opportunities there. And there are a couple others that you should check out as well. So check out the A3 website for that. We've got a good one teed up for you all today. We sit down and chat with Henry Munter and Rich Peterson of Chugach Powder Guides out of Girdwood, Alaska. And they do a great job of giving us a glimpse into the day of a life of a heli ski guide in the Chugach. Um, they, they talk a bit about the history of heli skiing in Alaska, talk about some of the geography um, and weather patterns of the Chugach range as well as what goes into some of the decision-making about where they're gonna ski for the day and how they're gonna manage uncertainty within the mountain environment. So I'm gonna get out of my own way here and uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Henry and Rich. Hey, good morning, fellas. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. All right, Skip. Great to be here. All right. So we got on the show, we got Henry Munter, who's the general manager for Chugach Powder Guides out of Girdwood, Alaska, as well as Rich Peterson, who's the head guide up at CPG. Um, and these guys have a wealth of experience in the heli ski business and avalanche forecasting and just guiding in general. Um, so we're hoping today 
we give the listener base a good glimpse into your operation. Um, I was just hoping you guys could start out with talking a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what your path looked like leading you to CPG. So yeah, I'm, I'm Henry Munter. I grew up in Ketchum, Idaho, and lived there uh, until I went to college, and after that went to Bozeman, Montana, and then have been in Alaska for about nine years. I grew up in the in a sort of culture steeped in backcountry skiing. My dad owned Backwoods Mountain Sports, or still owns Backwoods Mountain Sports, which is a backcountry ski shop, amongst other things, in Ketchum. Uh, my stepmom, Janet, was a longtime heli ski guide before I knew her and then transitioned into being an avalanche forecaster. So I was fortunate to kind of grow up around the avalanche forecasting world. And skiing was just a, a real passion of mine from the get-go. Sun Valley in the 90s was just an awesome place to be a kid. Uh, it's ultimate freedom up on that ski hill. And then I was fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to get into the backcountry and see what that was all about. And even though I never really, I, w- I wouldn't say I fell in love with backcountry skiing as a kid, I, I got enough of a taste for it that when I was sort of coming home to visit from college and didn't have lift tickets or, or after that, I, I really, I really just wanted to be out in the backcountry and out skiing, skiing runs that I hadn't skied before and skiing snow that hadn't been skied. I, after college, moved to Bozeman, Montana and got a job ski patrolling at the Yellowstone Club, which was a, a really cool opportunity. The Yellowstone Club is a, a compact mountain, but it's got a really cool program. The, the patrol director and snow safety director I worked, worked for there was Tom Leonard. And Tom came from Snow Basin and was just an awesome mentor and, and somebody I learned a, a whole lot from and, and somebody who I, I continue to think about as, I, as I've taken on more management responsibility over the years. At the same time, Yellowstone Club had, a, had an avalanche control program it also had a lot of MSU research happening there. So I was able to get my hands on quite a bit of field work. You know, there was a, a whole season where we were documenting snow surface processes every day and taking photos of snow crystals. That was really cool. Um, a, a variety of things like that. And just a, a lot of really smart and experienced people came through the doors there. And um, that, that sort of fueled my desire to get... Uh, for a long time, I had wanted to be in heli skiing and, and just sort of knew that was a path that I wanted to be on. And I, I started looking for opportunities to, to get my, my feet in the door. Uh, when my wife got done with nursing school and um, I was sort of at a point where I could move on from the Yellowstone Club, we, we sort of got some opportunities up here in Alaska and packed up and moved to, moved to Girdwood. And that was in 2008. I started out in sort of a uh, apprentice role or a, even a um, uh, an intern role at CPG and and was sort of here at a time when there was a lot of turnover and within a couple of years um, due to just some big changes in the company I, I sort of ended up lead guiding a little bit and and forecasting and starting in 2012 uh, through 2015 I was the lead guide and did all the forecasting and sort of built the built the forecasting program as it, as it is now. And in 2015, the, the outgoing general manager left and I sort of 
wanted a wanted a chance to stay part of the company and, and keep it going in the direction that I thought it should be going. And so I, I took the chance to run the company as a whole. At that point, um, Rich stepped in to be the head guide and we actually split up that head guide and head forecaster role so that now we have a, a snow safety director, Mike Welch, who's, who handles all the day-to-day forecasting and, and the, the greater responsibilities of snow safety um, here at CPG. So here we are 12 years later or whatever, and, and um, I still, I'm still happy to say that I guide a lot and am in the field a lot, even though my responsibility set has changed a little bit. My, my first love is still for being out in the field and, and for making the complex and, and fast moving world of heli skiing work. And that's, that's where we are today and looking forward. This is the time of year when I'm at peak panic about the mountains. They look really big and scary and uh, pretty soon here we'll be able to start getting out into them and they start feeling normal and, and where we belong again. So it's, it's nice to be talking to everybody about heli skiing right now and thinking about the season ahead. Yeah, right on. I should mention we're, we're recording this on October 1st, just to give a little reference there to the listeners. Um, we'll pass it over to Rich here. Rich, talk about your background and, and uh, maybe your different modes of travel over the snow and your path leading you to CPG. Yeah, so uh, Rich Peterson, again, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City. I uh, grew up right in downtown Salt Lake City, skiing in uh, both the cotton, Cottonwood resorts a lot. Um, my family was really into skiing. I think my, my pops was the first one that took me into the backcountry at oh, a fairly young age, like 12 or 13 years old. And then uh, getting a little older in high school, uh, I was pretty fortunate to have a, a pretty good group of, of skiers in high school. But actually, there's a, a big group of us that have all become professionals in different ways in the world. Um that all went to the same high school together. I think it was like Julian Carr, Grom from Alta, Rachel Burks, and uh, Clark Fines, who was a head guide here. All of us kind of, it's funny that we grew up at like the downtown school in Salt Lake, but all ended up um, in the, the outdoor industry in the end uh, via skiing. Um, I did grow up skiing and snowboarding. I mean, I learned to ski because I'm 41 and not many people started out snowboarding that are as old as me. But uh, I did snowboard predominantly through uh, like later in high school and a bunch of college. Um, I did work at uh, in the re- retail world for a long time. I worked at a snowboard shop in Salt Lake, Milo Sport, which uh, I met a bunch of good friends there and, and spent a lot of time in the backcountry at Brighton and uh, skiing out of Snowbird too. Um, from there, I started fighting Wildland Fire, I think in 2000. 2002 or three, I think was when I first started doing wildland fire. And, um, while I was doing that, my good buddy Clark finds that I talked about had moved to Alaska years before. So, um, me and him kind of stayed in touch through the years. I was a backcountry skier or snowboarder, but never really worked on like ski patrol or anything like that, but had been working on helicopters and stuff. Um, being a hotshot and a hell attack crew member on wildland fire. And uh, I came to visit Clark up here in Alaska, I think in 2006. And the next year I was able to weasel myself into kind of a position like Henry's, but a little bit more of like, I'll do whatever you need me to do position. So I started out like fueling some, we used to have a shuttle service from Anchorage and back that I did too. And then tail guiding in the snowcat and, um, and eventually helicopter ski guiding. When I first came, I just snowboarded. I think the first year that I worked here, I just snowboard guided. 
And then I think that was the only year that I, that I only did snowboard guiding after that. I, I skied, I skied some and snowboarded some here. So, um, I think that's about it for the different types of riding. If we talk, go back and talk about uh, wildland firefighting, I think Caleb, actually, that's how me and you met years ago. I can't remember. I think were we both on the Bonneville hotshot crew at the same time, or did you detail the last year I was on the shot crew? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I detailed over from an engine that last year you were on the crew and then you jumped over to the hell attack crew and I jumped on to the hotshot crew at that point, you know, we had a, an office that maybe shared a wall or something like that. So definitely, uh, got to know you a little bit better through the, the Salt Lake field office, the BLM there. Um, yep. super fun times out there during the summer. No, well, not always fun, but there were some fun times. Yeah, there were some fun times. Yeah. I guess I, I should have said before, I, I think I worked in wildland fire for nine years. I think I did four years as a four years as a hotshot. And I think believe five years on Salt Lake Hell Attack. And that was also with some other heli ski guides, uh, Fred Aldridge, who you work with a bit, me and him are pretty close. And, uh, a couple folks, Patrick Kenny, who's worked for Park City Powder Cats for a long time was a pretty big mentor for mine in the fire world and uh, turned out to be one a little bit in the, in the backcountry guiding world too. I learned a lot from him and he, he was the one who kind of gave me the kick out the door to like, yeah, you should just move to Alaska and quit fighting fire and like go all in on, on heli ski guiding. Nice. Yeah. Good shout out to PK. Congrats on your retirement there. Yeah. Congrats PK. All right. So I was hoping you guys could bring a little bit of context to some of the skiing and, and specifically the heli ski history in Alaska and, and how Chugach Powder Guides fits into that history. Yeah. So skiing and heli skiing started about the same time in Girdwood and, and for listeners that haven't been to Girdwood, we're just south of Anchorage, which is essentially we're right at the, right at the, the end of the Kenai Peninsula or at least on the, where the Kenai Peninsula attaches to mainland Alaska. And so we're, we're right, just right north of the biggest swath of the Pacific Ocean uh, that there is. You know, if you, if you fly just a few miles south of us, you can see Antarctica on a clear day is what we like to say. And, and so there's, there's just a lot of snow here. We're at 60 degrees north latitude and, and then Anchorage, which is just 30 miles north of us is a pretty dry place. So we, we live in this sort of unique stratified uh, climate. Skiing has, has been a part of Anchorage for a long time. And, and in the 50s, uh, people started coming down to Girdwood and, and trying to build a ski area. And before there were lifts, there's actually some awesome video you can track down of, of people getting lifts up on the Maxis Mountain with a helicopter, which is it's pretty wild to think about not just the helicopters that existed in the 50s, but also just the skiing gear. Um, and Maxis is it's it's big, it's big terrain. It's pretty cool. That happened in the in the late 50s, and then Alyeska was developed progressively from then on. In the late 70s and early 80s, there was a heli ski operation here, and I believe it was called Far North Ski Guides, um, is something like that, or Great North Ski Guides, that ran uh, Hueys, so bigger groups. And that was when the majority of tourists that came to Alaska were, were from Japan, and they would travel all over the train that we still travel, including a lot of other places that we're not allowed to anymore. That operation ran for about six years and then shut down. 
Um, I'm not sure why it shut down, but it's it stopped operating. And then there was the the um, the coolest bit of history in my mind was uh, Dave Hamry, who had been sort of part of Far North Ski Guides or or whatever that operation was. I think um, when that stopped, he started a, a heli ski club where they would get a helicopter and a bunch of buddies and just share the expense and ski on the forest here. And it was non-commercial. It was just people out there having fun, which is, um, you know, a group of buddies getting a helicopter and flying all over South central is like the most Alaskan thing that you can imagine. It's, it's pretty wild. And they, those guys pioneered a lot of the ski runs that, that we still ski today. You know, a lot of the, the run names, um, in 1997, when Chigach Powder Guide started, a lot of the run names already existed from those couple of operations. Uh, Dave Hamry was one of the original founders of Chigach Powder Guides. And um, he and Mike Overcast and Dave Marshall in 1997 were able to um, get some permits to operate on National Forest on a little chunk of state land here in Girdwood. Um, you know, Girdwood is is essentially in the Anchorage Bowl and Anchorage is the most populous part of Alaska by far. Um, there's wilderness study area, a huge chunk of wilderness study area on one side of us. Uh, there's Chigach State Park, which is all, it's mostly non-motorized on another side. Um, it's it's a, an area with a lot of use. And even though the mountains are really expansive and there's a ton of terrain, it's also, it's also a place where a lot of different user groups exist. And so permitting here was quite a bit different than anywhere else in Alaska and looked a lot more like what a permitting process would look like in, in the lower 48. That, um, as that permit came to fruition, the business grew and, and got us um, sort of on our feet as a business. By the time Rich and I started guiding here, we, were, we had been sort of rebranded into this new company that was uh, trying to take Chigach Powder Guides and, and merge it into a bunch of other luxury destination travel experiences. And that happened um, right when the, the financial crisis was sort of melting down. Um, and, and that had real impacts just on, on luxury travel. Right. And so that venture kind of failed and out of the ashes of that, some of the investors there, um, took control of the company and then formed what, what it is now, which is a, you know, a privately held business that, um, is really just focused on Girdwood. And so now all of our operations are, are based out of Girdwood. Everything we do is Girdwood centered. Uh, most of our staff live in Girdwood and, and now we just, we try to make this the, the best place in the world to come skiing and, and deal with the Alaska challenges along the way. Right on. Rich, maybe you could speak about what some of the heli ski offerings look like for your guests and kind of like how, how you're situated amongst other operators in the area and how does that play out? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, we, like Henry said, most of the skiing we do is, is close to Girdwood. Um, you know, I think the, the lion's share of the skiing we do is within 30 miles or so of Girdwood. And most of that being on the Chugach or yeah, the Chugach National Forest, um, and the Glacier City Ranger District and the, uh, and the Seward Ranger District. Um, most of the skiing that we, that we, we offer day skiing, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of broken up. Henry, correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty even into thirds with day skiing and multi-day packages and then uh, private charter heli skiing. Um, and we kind of mix, we try to mix it up between those three. Um, um, and um, 
like have a diverse portfolio basically of the of the people that were taking out there skiing talking about other operators around you know i think if you look at the list of operators in alaska i can't remember what the number is currently but um the concentration of them is definitely in thompson pass near valdez is where there's a bunch of them um and then uh, cordova has has one and then uh, in the anchorage bowl now i guess you could say there's there's three or so um you know we've we've been around the longest, but there's a, uh, you see Silverton out in, in near some of the terrain that we ski. And then also, um, triple point, those guys that are up there a little bit in, in the Palmer area too. Um, normally though, I mean, it's, it's a whole bunch of mountains. I think for the normal guest experience, um, the chances of seeing another operator are, are not, are not super high. We, we do run into other, other operators out there sometimes. Um, but it, it's not that often. And, we operate um, up to three ships, usually close to Girdwood, and then a fourth ship sometimes that's operating a little bit farther away from Girdwood. Um, and so, when you run that fourth ship, you, you're just shuttle that staging somewhere else, and you're shuttling guests to a, a remote. Sometimes, sometimes it's out of Girdwood. It's just typically not skiing close to Girdwood, um, not skiing on the national forest, and then other times we'll operate that ship out of Seward. And sometimes we'll operate that ship out of Palmer or some other places where we're, we're permitted to ski where we can find a place to park the ship. One of the things that makes uh, Chugach Pattern Guides unique, I think, is because we're based out of Girdwood, um, which is the home of Alieska Resort, a great ski resort that we're, we're proud to be partners with. Um, you know, we, we pick the guests up from the resort. Most of our guests do stay at Hotel Alieska. So on the down days, um, which at least skiing in Alaska, it's pretty much a given that you're going to have down days. Um, they're able to ski at Alaska Resort, and then we do have cat skiing from time to time. Uh, historically, cat skiing was a big part of our our operation, where we could kind of count on it for most of the years. Um, over the last oh, I'd say ten years, we've probably had. I think Henry, correct me again if I'm wrong. I think there's been four years that we haven't been able to cat ski because there wasn't enough snow at low elevation to build the cat road. So we still try to get the cat skis out and take the people's cat skiing when we can, but it's not quite as uh, much of a, a guarantee or a reliability as it not as reliable as it once was. Um, another thing about Girdwood that makes us, I think unique is uh, we are as close to the Anchorage airport to Ted Stevens international as any operator, it's about 45 minutes or an hour drive from the airport to get here. So getting in and out of Alaska, um, coming to ski in Girdwood, um, is, is the, I think is the easiest way. It's the, it's the quickest place to get to in Alaska from wherever you're coming from. Nice. And it, it sounds like you guys do a, a pretty good shuttle service there. People don't have to rent a car. They just fly in, you pick them up and, and bring them out to Girdwood. Is that right? Uh, it depends on which product you buy. You know, the day skiing that we sell is kind of a la carte. And uh, most of the people on the day ski program have have their own. They have it figured out. A lot of them are, you know, a fair amount of them are, are Alaska locals. And then it's other folks that are like on a trip for a week at Alaska anyways and just looking to get out one or two days. Um, in uh, all the like the four day package and the charter trips that we sell. Uh, typically I mean, those all do include a, a shuttle service and people usually take advantage of that. Cool. What a great backup to have to heli skiing to, to be able to sometimes have cat skiing, but always have skiing at Alieska. I can imagine that 
you know, some days, you, you know, are you out skiing with guests at Alaska and, and if the weather's supposed to break and then you can go heli skiing in the afternoon, that sort of transition? Uh, I think me and Henry used to get to do that, <laughs> but we no longer usually get the opportunity to go ski with the guests uh, just because of our roles here. But uh, you're correct, Caleb, that, that is something that um, the guides all love to do. I mean, I think that's a a prerequisite of being a heli ski guide here is that you need to love skiing and uh, hopefully you're chomping at the bit to get out at that ski resort on the, on the pow day that we can't fly. Right. Sounds like a good backup opportunity there. I think it's important to say too that Alyeska resort is, uh, and for the, for the people that are interested in avalanches listening to this uh, podcast, it's, uh, one of the more complicated avalanche problems you'll find at a ski area. And because of that, it's just an awesome place to ski. It's a, it's a steep mountain. It's a lot of snow. It's, it's, I won't speak for rich, but it's the main reason I wanted to live here is to be by that mountain. And the, the heli skiing is a great perk, but <laughs> it's a fun place to ski. I would agree that that was like the, after visiting here and, and skiing there on a few storm days, I was like, Oh, this is here too. Why would you not live here? <laughs> All right. Sounds great. I've never been, but I look forward to the time when I get to check it out. Um, yeah. so hoping you guys could talk a little bit about, and maybe it's the elephant in the room, but the, the implications that COVID-19 is going to have on the heli ski industry and, you know, maybe briefly talk about the reduction in your 2020 season and then, and then how, how are you guys moving forward from this? Um, I can start Henry and then you can let me know what stuff I missed. Um, you know, briefly the, in the 2020 season, we, I think our last day of operation was March 16th. I think we got about half our heli skiing done that we normally do which I think we were fortunate enough that that was maybe a little more than some of the other Canadian operators, just because we get going um, a little earlier than, than most of the other groups do. But I mean, that it was still, it still stunk and it, it was too bad that we didn't, that we didn't get to operate the rest of the year and, and that those folks didn't get to come visit us. Um, you know, looking for the 2021 season, it's, I think it's pretty hard to, see what exactly is going to happen. Um, we're making some assumptions. We're, we're, we're like guessing basically on what we think it's going to be like, but uh, it definitely is going to affect us. some. Um, I think the good thing to start out with when you're talking about it is that uh, I, it's not going to affect the skiing. COVID, the COVID virus isn't going to affect the snow coming out of the sky or, or how good the skiing is. So the skiing will stay the same. But I think some of the experience is, is going to be is, is going to be the biggest or the biggest changes. So, you know, travel is going to be a challenge. I think uh, for non-Americans coming to ski here, there's some challenges there. Whether it's the challenges of of them being able to come to the U.S. or it seems a lot of times it's one of the bigger challenges now is when they go home, what are they going to have to do? Are they going to have to quarantine for two weeks when they get home before they go back to work? So. I think for our non-American guests that the travel is going to be a big challenge in making it here this year. Um, you know, there, there's like the, um, the challenge of like, what do we do? What are we going to do for our COVID operations plan? Like 
how many people are we going to allow to come? What are going to be the protocols of like what you're going to have to do once you get here? How are we going to run the business in a way that's like in line with like the guidelines, best practices and all those things. And um, I think a large challenge with all of that is that it's a moving target. It's, it's really dynamic, you know, from, from week to week, the, the recommendations are changing as there's more studies coming out. You can, you know, you're adjusting what we're going to do from there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to say what we're going to do. I think one of the, the biggest thing that we're doing right now to be ready for it is communicating with our guests on what the challenges may or may not be, and then preparing ourselves to be as flexible as we can. Um, I think you see a lot of the heli ski industry or all the heli ski industry has been a lot more flexible on their booking policies and refund policies. And, and we're doing the same there where like, if, if you can't come on your trip because, because of COVID basically that you're going to be able to roll your trip to the next year. And then like the, the deposits are, are um, a lower percentage than they were other years. And just some other things to give people a peace of mind to book here uh, at the same time, talking to them about like, what we're going to have to do when you come, you know, like face masks, social distancing, um, the nightlife is going to be very different. Like they'll still be dining here and the, the hotel is still going to be open and have all their dining options. But you know, there's, there's going to be no sits mark, sits mark music. Um, um, and it's just going to be all about the skiing this year. I think anything on that, Henry, you think that I missed? Uh, the only thing I would add is that we're, we're really used to managing risk at this operation, but usually we're managing internal risks, right? The, the decisions that guides make or the assumptions that, that guests make, the ability of, of pilots to fly in certain weather. But this is, this is the first challenge we've faced where the actions we take really affect our community. And because so many of us live here and, and work here, you know, we're not, we're not a remote lodge. We've really had to, think differently about how we treat the, the coronavirus situation in terms of how we, how we impact our, our community. And, and so we're, we're taking it really seriously. And I think the, the good news is I think we're going to be able to operate and I think we're going to be able to operate in a way that it's going to uh, show people a really good time. I think it's never been more important for people to get out and have wild experiences like what you get heli skiing. I mean, everybody's been so cooped up and, stuck on zoom calls and, and dealing with alternative education for their kids. People are really ready to, to get out and do wild stuff. And I think we're going to be able to provide that in a way that's harmonious with our community, but it's, it's, it's been challenging and it will continue to be challenging. And I don't think any of us have any answers as to how it's actually going to go and probably won't for some time. Right. Which is a bit of a luxury in the industry that, that, you, everybody has a little bit more time to figure this out, right? Waiting to at least kind of midwinter to get some of these operations rolling. Is there any indication that you'll just have more um, private helicopter trips, you know, like encouraging people to have four people in their group so that they're from the same area or, you know, like tr just trying to mix up groups a little bit less? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're, we're employing a bunch of tactics to, to, minimize the size of bubbles and keep keep bubbles as contained as possible and and there's there's a bunch of ways that we're handling that um, we're definitely we're definitely planning on taking fewer guests one way or another and that sort of reduces our risk somehow um, 
there's only so much we can do that and and not affect our our operation but but i do think it, it's it's going to be different and how how people sort of decide they want to travel do they how they want to do that is 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 going to really depend on what happens this month and next month and the, and the month after that and so we're we're <laughs> we're surveying all the all the options and keeping an open mind for for what is going to best handle the situation when it comes i think rich and i are are both really ready to do a lot of thinking on our feet as to as to how best to actually get the plane out of the sky but we've we've spent all summer researching sort of what what the scenarios might look like and we'll see how that all shakes out yeah well yeah i'm sure people still want to get outside still want to go skiing still want to go heli skiing and it sounds like that if they have any interest in in coming up to girdwood to ski with you guys just and, and have concerns they should just give you a call right like if you're planning on going anywhere and working with a guide outfitter and you have concerns you know everybody's willing to talk about this so we all want to make it happen get people facilitating these experiences right so um don't hesitate to ask questions if you're listening to this podcast and want to find out more about the precautions that that all these operators are taking. Um, I'm I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty tired of talking about uh, COVID pandemic and and so maybe we can kind of take a deep breath and talk about some things that come a little bit more naturally to us. Um, I I reached out to you guys and asked if you wanted to be on the podcast and. And I think Henry's humble answer was just, you know, we're just trying to grind out some guide meetings up here and not screw up too bad in the field. Um, certainly a humble answer from a very reputable guiding organization. But talk about the process that your organization has for risk management and, and how you get out the door with a bunch of heli-ski guests um, right after a storm and, and manage that terrain, manage the avalanche hazard. I think I'll, I'll start this one and it's important to just say, and I, I gave a bit of a, a, a bit of coverage to this earlier, but in Girdwood, we're, we're in a pretty unique place. We operate as far south as about 70 miles away and about as far north as about 70 miles away. And, and in between there's sort of a 20 to 30 mile wide swath that, has a variety of land that we can use. Within that terrain, there is um, a lot of coastal terrain. There is a lot of a lot of mountains that typically exhibit a coastal snowpack. There are a lot of mountains that typically exhibit an intermountain snowpack. And there's a lot of mountains that typically exhibit a continental snowpack. And and we operate in all of them. We we break out our our terrain into regions. There's roughly six regions. Um, in the more northern regions, it tends to be a more continental or, or at best intermountain snowpack. Um, in the southern terrain, it tends to be a more uh, intermountain or, or coastal snowpack. But within each one of those uh, regions, there's multiple zones that you might have on one side of the valley a, a coastal snowpack one year and on the other side of the valley a continental snowpack on that same year. So we we deal with just a tremendous amount of variety in snowpack. We have some of the better weather instrumentation in, in Alaska. Like when I look at what we get as inputs to our weather, it's, it's better than most places, but it's still, 
lackluster at best. There are huge areas that we operate all the time where the closest weather station is 40 miles away or 50 miles away. And, and so we, we run on what I sort of refer to as a, a low resolution forecast. And we, we paint a broad brush picture of the regions that we're going to go into. Um, and then, and then we do a lot of on-site guiding, um, in that context. It's, it's a very difficult place to accurately predict weather. And, and so it's very rare that we know exactly where we're going to go on any given morning. Um, it's often the case that we don't know until the middle of the day or until we're out in the field. So there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, um, thinking, thinking from the seat that needs to happen in terms of where we're going to go and how we're going to go. And, and in the last several years, we've, we've had a real increase in, in single load skiing, which is where you just have two guides and, and two or three guests in the helicopter and a lot of fuel. And when you do that, you can get really, really far away from base and, and ski and train that's really far away from everything else. And you might not actually be that far away from the other helicopters, but you're a long way away from your sort of core terrain. And so we've built our whole program around the flexibility, both to appropriately handle our multiple group close to home skiing and our far flung single load skiing um, with a, a lot of different guides working a lot of different agendas at any one time. I think it's fair to say we have a really complicated operation, you know, on any given day we could have um, I think our, our max is, you know, five helicopters and two snow cats. And that's roughly 20 guides out in the field um, over a pretty wide swath of land. So we, we build everything that we do around um, making that work in a, um, both in a responsible way in terms of like, we're um, offering appropriate safety to our, our guides and guests and pilots and also in a, in like a defensible way in, in that we're, uh, we're upholding industry standards and to the best of our ability uh, operating a way that doesn't affect the industry as a whole negatively. Um, that's a, that's a big, it's a big bite and there's a lot of unpacking we can do with that, but you know, in a, in a rough sense, we've got a hundred day season and in that hundred days, you know, we, probably operate 70 or 80 days, like actually get out into the field 70 or 80 days. And, um, that's, that's a lot happening and trying to, to process all that as best we can is, is the daily goal. Um, once we get out into the field, I think most of us are operating the way we were, there's a lot of just traditional hand-me-downs in our operation as, as to how we do it once we get in the field. But, Guides have their own styles and do things their own ways, but um, I think what's unique about our operation is is really our ability to, to process everything that goes on um, and get everybody out the door in a way that has them prepared, has all the guides prepared, has the guests as prepared as possible, has everybody ready to go and um, ready to go do some incredible skiing and do it to a reasonable degree of uh, safety. So follow-up question to that. Henry is, is I've heard you say in a, in a different interview, the blister podcast, actually which a little side note here. If you guys aren't familiar with the blister podcast, check that out. And Jonathan had a great interview with Henry, um, earlier this spring, but I've, I heard in that interview, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that at CPG, you guys aren't using a run list because oftentimes the, there's so much terrain and, 
you don't necessarily want to paint yourself into a corner that way, uh, especially before you get some field observations. So um, maybe one of you guys could talk me through what like your typical guide meeting would look like and either the use or lack of use of a, of a run list. So uh, typical guide meeting, I can kind of just go through kind of what the typical day looks like. Um, uh, the forecaster, and we have usually three different forecasters that are that are taking turns through the season doing the forecast um, under the snow safety director. Um, the forecaster will usually start writing their forecast around, oh, I'd say 5 or 5.30 a.m. Uh, we try to have that forecast emailed out to the whole staff by 6.30 a.m., so they have a chance to to look over it um, before before they arrive at the guide meeting. In the forecast, there's a weather forecast sheet, and then there's also an operational forecast sheet. So one sheet just has like the weather ops from the day before, the forecast for you know what different resources from NOAA and and also Chugach National Forest uh, um, on the weather forecast and then the operational forecast has the avalanche forecast for the different zones that Henry had talked about. And also, um, it has observations on it from each of the helicopters from the previous couple days. And so they get all the information before they come into guide meeting, uh, guide meeting week is about an hour long that starts off with the, the forecast reviewing the weather. And then we'll, um, each lead guide will review, um, what they did the day before, and we use a GPS track in all the helicopters and the GPS tracks up on a screen in the morning. So you won't forget where you went at all. And you like, remember, um, it shows exactly what the helicopter did for that day. And you kind of review the highlights of your day, um, what went well, what went bad, those type of things. And it's, it's pretty succinct, you know, um, I think we try to keep it under a couple minutes for each lead guide to talk about what they did the day and like the tactics they use, things that went well, things that went bad. Uh, and then we'll, then we'll, the forecaster will talk about the avalanche forecast for the day. And then after that, that's when we go into where each lead will, will take their turn talking about like what they're going to do for that day, which is, you know, it's, it's not like we we're talking about before a little different than what a traditional run discussion would be, but talking about um, some different things that they're going to be looking for, like the type of terrain, what they're going to expect to see out there in the snowpack and, and what they're looking for. Um, and then a little bit of logistical stuff. And, and that's the end of the guide meeting. Is it safe to say you guys take, take certain terrain off the list for the day, given the, the, the snowpack observations from the previous day and the avalanche forecast, you're just like, we are not going to, this aspect above this elevation um or or do you try and keep things open and and from what i've heard uh, it sounds like you guys try and keep things pretty open and then try and do some good consensus decision making in the field on the fly it's a combination of both and i think when it's i get really nervous whenever i start talking about our approach to the run list in public because it's a it's a tool that's been widely accepted and and there's a lot of people that really think we're doing it wrong by not coming up with a list we've um we've tried over the years and and have had pretty limited success at actually implementing it a lot of it is that so much of our train is in the alpine that the our ability to actually accurately forecast what we're going to see out there in terms of snow quality in terms of snowpack structure in terms of new snow distribution, wind effect, you name it, 
is is frankly not all that great. And so we we often find that when we do do more run list type discussions where we say this is open and this is closed, the discussion gets very academic and we we lose people and and the end product is not safer in the field. It's more legally defensible um, because we're doing what everybody else does. But I, I really don't think that it's safer for us to go out there with a list of this you can ski and this you can't. Um, and I wish I had a better way of defending it than that. I really, I really do. And we've, we've put a lot of, a lot of thought. I've had a lot of discussions with people that are real strong believers in the run list. Our, our compromise is, is that we have an incredibly accurate terrain catalog. Um, we've invested a ton of energy over the years into um, keeping our, our photo library of the, of the ski runs, um, not just up to date, but really comprehensive so that you've got, you know, multiple seasons and, and, um, vantages of all the different places that we ski a lot so that you can accurately, accurately look and, and sort of comprehend and digest the terrain. But we, we've never gotten to a point where we really succeed on a daily basis of saying, um, this run in that zone is closed and this run in that zone is open. Part of that is that there are very few runs in our terrain that are, that are straightforward green runs, like that you would ski, um, no matter what, no matter when there's a few and that's where we go and it's just snowed a bunch or super nervous about what's going on. Um, but there's not many. And at the same time, there are not many runs that you couldn't go find a two or 300 foot chunk to go ski and get your feet in the snow and, and see what's happening. So I, I definitely have had a lot of days out in the field where I've gone to a run that would absolutely be closed on the run list. Like you would never, you would never think to open that run in the morning and gotten out on a 300 foot chunk of it. That's totally manageable that day and gotten some quality observations and, and been able to sort of pivot that into, um, into formulating a better plan for that day. Um, we do, we have pretty long discussions about like what you're going to ski and what you're not going to ski and all the lead guides are, are responsible for where everybody in their ship goes. So it's, it's not like once you get out into the field, it's a free for all, you know, everybody's um, either skiing runs that the lead guide opened or opening runs that the lead guide gave them permission to open. And so there's, there's a structure and a hierarchy, but it doesn't flow through an open or closed ma uh, matrix like it would at some operations and, and rather the opposite, I would say that it's just all open most days. Um, you know, if we, if we were out trying to ski like tomorrow after five inches of water in two days, um, the, the general vibe will definitely be like, I'm going to go to high, high green terrain. <laughs> That's what everybody be saying. Um, but, but we don't go out there with a, um, you can, or you can't mentality. That seems like a good, a good, uh, strategy to just kind of, you know, like get some observations on snow in a safe place and not necessarily, commit yourself to that whole run. Um, how do you, how do you manage client expectations when doing that? You know, like some people just, just they go heli skiing, they're guided because they don't want to think about that hazard. Right. And so, you know, if you put them in front of this, um, 2000 foot run and, you know, only 
only give them 200 feet of it. What's the response to that sometimes? Well, I think we talked a bit about this prior to prior to today about how, how we could talk about how we manage guest expectations and what we do. And I think um, it's, it starts from the first phone call when they call and, and, and are interested in asking about the trip. Uh, right there, you're like starting in some way or another to manage their expectations, like ask them like what kind of skiing they're looking for. You know, you're talking to them about like how many days you're actually going to get out. It's a pretty normal question when people call to ask like, hey, if we're like ready to send it and you guys like can tell that we're good skiers, are we going to be able to like go ski the spines? And um, that if you take that opportunity really early on in your relationship with the guests to like tell them like, hey, I mean, we want to do that too. That's what most people come up here and want to do, including pro skiers. And a lot of times you don't get to do it. You know, you got to, it's got to be a combination of, of weather and snowpack stability and just then luck too, that, that those things happen and, and talking with people about like how difficult it is to get those like pinnacle, pinnacle moments of your ski career that it, it doesn't come easy and that it takes a lot of, it takes some investment and it takes some time. And then when they arrive, you're, you know, you're doing the same thing. I think in the briefings we're, we're talking about like the inherent risks of skiing and like how things need to line up for, for us to get onto steeper terrain. And then, you know, in the morning, each guides, you know, kind of talking with their guests about what their desires are and, and talking about the reality of like, whether or not going to be able to do that stuff. Um, and then, you know, in the field, people can still be even after, you know, talking to them about it for a few months before they get there it's like their one trip of the year and, and there they can, you, you get pretty bummed. I mean, the people can get pretty bummed and, and obviously as a guide, you're like disappointed that you don't get to show them the, the, what they came to do. But I think that's part of being a heli ski guide is, is understanding that you're going to have to do that. And, and, uh, you know, not, not letting it affect your decision-making recognizing that like that that's happening, but, um, you know, not letting it affect what, what you're going to do or, or communicating with the guests. It seems like that's a great strategy to kind of give the guests a little glimpse into the decision-making too. You're not trying to like keep the veil of decision-making away from your guests, right? You're actually somewhat including them in it, right? At least giving them a glimpse into it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, especially when you get into the guests that are with us for multiple days, you build a relationship and, and you're talking with them about like why you made decisions and what weather is going to come for the next day. And, you know, off and then people who you ski with a bunch or some of the charter programs, you know, you're talking with them about like, what are our options? Where, what can we ski? What are you looking to do today? And, and what can we do about it? I'm going to back up just a second to some logistics. Um, you know, part of risk management is having the appropriate resources in the right place at the right time to back each other up. So say you guys are running a pretty busy day with, uh, would that be three helicopters in the field, three or four, it sounds like? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, how are those groups um, skiing around each other? Is it like a lead guide takes four guests and the helicopter and is off on their own. Then there's another helicopter in a different zone or talk about some of the logistics of that. I'm sure it, I'm sure it changes day to day. 
Yeah, it does change day to day. So in the in the guide meeting, like we were talking about in the morning, when the guides are talking about where they want to ski and what they're going to be looking for, um, a lot of that when we can, like if we know we're going to get to ski at nine o'clock, um, the all of the leads like together kind of hash out what they want to do and where they want to go. Um, typically, we're skiing, you know, pretty good distances apart. Like I said, you know, like. You have ships that are a hundred miles apart on a given day, like the two farthest apart ships, but, um, skiing, you know, considerations with like aircrafts flying in the same drainage, you know, those are the things that are going to like, that you're going to be like the baseline of how close you can operate. Um, we'll have times if it's like, there's like one place that it's sunny that we'll have a couple of ships operating in like, you know, within a couple miles of each other, mm-hmm. um, with a lot of coordination between the pilots. But on a typical day where it's clear, you know, people are going to be the ship, the forest programs are going to be like a fair distance apart. Um, and, but not within each ship, like a ship that has three groups in it, they're going to be skiing close together. I mean, the, all the protocols that are, that are in like heli ski us and the stuff that are ops plan is however you're skiing, you're skiing in a fashion that you have backup. You know, if you're, if you're in a three group scenario with, four guests in each load and one guide in each, you know, one guide with each group, you're skiing in a way that if something happens as the guide skiing first, that the guide behind you is either on the ridge or in the helicopter or getting in the helicopter so they can respond to an incident and down on down, you know, and we have, we talk about that in training and in guide meeting, like the different tactics for different situations, whether it's like up to four groups or a single load or, or two loads with three guides like how you're going to ski with the bottom line being like, where, where is your backup? When are you, you know, when are you effectively skiing alone of trying to avoid that or understanding when you're doing that and acting accordingly? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, just to kind of clarify that for the listeners. So if you had three groups skiing out of one helicopter, that's 12 people in one helicopter and one drainage, and you guys might have two to three groups out of another helicopter with one lead guide and, and two to three other guides in another drainage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So you, you could have as many, you know, as on a really busy day, maybe you'd have three helicopters that each had three or four groups with them. Uh, scattered across like a, I don't know, 20 mile range around Girdwood and then one other ship with one or two loads that's 50 miles away or something like that. Right. Okay. So, so moving on and talking a little bit about, um, you know, what, what's super exciting to do in a helicopter is to go somewhere that you haven't been before or, you know, like opening up new train, even just for the season. Um, so talk a little bit about the process that your guide team goes through when forecasting to go into new zones where you don't have any snowpack information. I mean, you can extrapolate, but you haven't had any boots on the ground yet. What does that look like? So I do that a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I get to, I get to go pretty far flung fairly often and, and if, um, have had a great opportunity to ski a lot of terrain that I hadn't skied before or wasn't familiar with. And, and for me, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. I am really detailed about photographs I take every time I go into a new zone. I come back and catalog all those photographs so that the next time I'm out there, I'm not having to absorb all that information all at once. I can deal with it in a piece by piece way. And combining photographs with Google Earth, you can get a really good sense of at least where the terrain is and how it relates to, to each other. 
I personally um, just am forced to discount snowpack information in, in the way I operate um, from, from where I intuitively want it to be, like as a, as a longtime lover of snow and snow processes and, and somebody that loves digging snow pits. Um, I know I personally am a little bit biased towards the snowpack information. And, and if I'm not controlling myself, I'll spend more time on the snowpack and less time on, on the, the terrain and the, the sort of generic snowpack profile that you should build in your head before you even look in the snow. And what, what I try to do is have, have a really good, you know, again, a low resolution idea of what should be happening out there. And then my snow pit that I dig when I show up in a new piece of terrain and get out on, um, I, I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of flack for saying this, but I'm very fond of the technique of flying into a new zone, looking for the flattest thing that I possibly can find that looks like I can get down it <laughs> and then getting out there. And then almost invariably you find that that flattest thing that you can find is steeper than you want it to be. <laughs> but, um, but I, I try to fl like fly in with, with some assumptions about what the snowpack is. Um, and that's based on our season weather, but also just on what the snow looks like when you're flying into the zone. Does the snow look new? Does it look old? Has the sun been affecting it? Has the wind been affecting it? What's, what, what do I expect to see there? And then get a quick look in the snow and then start um, adjusting my terrain accordingly. And when I, when I say that I'm biased towards that, that snowpack information, I, I think what I really want to try to go into the field with is a, a really good set of priors, like a really good assumption set on what I should be seeing. If I'm flying up into the North Chugach and, you know, I, I should know that this year it snowed a lot up there in October and then it was clear and cold for a long time. We probably have a pretty ugly snowpack and I shouldn't go dig in the snow and find a, a, a nice structure with um, a nice two meter snowpack in this one spot and then assume it's game on everywhere. And then similarly, I shouldn't go out into the field knowing that it's been snowing for two months straight and, and manage to find the one spot that got cleaned out by a bunch of wind and has a bunch of facets on the ground and only a little bit of snow. Cause that was the only safe place I could find to dig and assume that everything else is as suspect as that. Now there's a lot of nuance in how all that works, but I think for me, the big thing is, trying to have like a really good base assumption as to what I should see going out finding terrain that's appropriate um, to do a terrain progression and then, and then work the, work the operating tactics from there, do your best to start on small terrain, get a high volume of just on snow observations, less, less digging, more travel and, um, and come home with like a really good picture that you can go back the next day and step it up from there. You know, terrain progression is the, like the mantra that a lot of us, that a lot of us speak all the time. And, and there are days when the train progression can happen really rapidly within a day. And there are weeks where the train progression happens really slowly over the course of the week. And I try to, I try really hard to just allow the snowpack information that I'm getting or that's coming from other observers to, um, to not overweigh what we're finding by just travel. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think that you made some great points there, Henry. And, I think that's one thing that's super transferable from operations to recreational skiing is 
going out into the backcountry with an idea of what you think is going on and whether that's based on reading your local avalanche center forecast or just previous trips into the backcountry that week, you know, like you should have a general idea of what's going on in the snowpack. So I think that's a great transferable skill to the recreationist um, as well. Another thing that while you're talking about terrain progression, I've also heard you talk a bit about finding the area that has the least amount of snow to start on. And so in a way that's kind of like stepping into the snowpack slowly. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think all of us here, uh, if given the chance to mitigate our hazard with one technique, all of us would choose first to, to, um, use the technique where you fly away from the hazard as far away as you can and then tiptoe your way back, right? Like nobody likes to, nobody likes to go out into the, um, into our Southern region after it's just snowed four feet and have to start managing like really giant terrain with a ton of new snow, you know, that's, that's just really hard. If you, if you have the luxury of a, of a flexible program and a fast helicopter, you, there are often days where you can, fly and you kind of are looking at the size of the loose snow avalanches that that always follow storms and you know flying out of Girdwood you're seeing some like two and a half and threes loose snows like some big loose snow avalanches and you keep flying north and they start turning to twos and one and a half and after a while you start seeing snow that you know there there's six inches of snow I can manage that and that allows you to that allows you to get into terrain um, a lot quicker I think what you know, the terrain thing is so hard because the train, you don't get to, you get the train that you have access to And very little of our terrain is like starts with a 25 degree ramp. And then, you know, the next thing up is 28 and the next thing up is 31 and, and you work your way around and it's like, you can do a perfect train progression. A lot of times you don't have that luxury. And so sometimes just flying to where there's less snow and skiing, really big runs. And I mean, I've, boy, I've had a lot of days where in Girdwood, I'm scared and, and trying to take it as easy as possible. And 30 miles North, we're starting on, on some of the biggest runs we ski, uh, just cause you can, you can with quite a bit of certainty tell that there's only four inches of new snow and, and that's a great way to approach a big piece of train. I'm going to lead out this next question with the caveat that, that not, I would say not avalanches are, are, are equal, right? I think that's pretty common knowledge. There's more destructive avalanche types, more destructive avalanche sizes. Um, given that, do you guys think it's acceptable to trigger avalanches while ski guiding? Yeah, I would, I would say that if you're choosing sea guiding as your profession, that you should expect that you're going to trigger an avalanche. Um, and kind of like what you said, I mean, there's a range of, of what you, you would expect that you're going to trigger, but you know, I, I feel like if, if you do this for 10 years, I would expect that you would trigger a, a D2 or a D3 avalanche in 10 years of, of ski guiding. Um, we talk often about what we call a, a lessons delivered lessons delivered in uh, heli ski guiding where I think too, that like, you know, you, you make, you have positive ski cuts as a ski patroller or a ski guide and that stuff happens. And then there's the next step up when it like gets closer to the near miss category. 
And I think you're foolish to think that like once that happens to you, once that you've learned your lesson, um, that like, okay, that happened to me. That was a close call. It's, it's not out of the way. Uh, the lessons that you got from it are hard to remember. Like the mistakes that you made eight years ago, it's really hard to reflect on, even if you have a pit book or a guide report or any of those things. So, um, expecting those things to happen and happen again and, uh, recognizing the the lessons that were delivered from them and trying to remember those and share them is like a big part of, of what we try to do in our guide meeting and in our guide culture. Um, and that, that being said, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about like experiences that we've had later, but you know, like I, all the guides that work here, I think I can pretty confidently say I've triggered, have triggered avalanches that are in the D2 category, at least um, guests have triggered D1 avalanches commonly once in a while, D2, and then guests and guides, you know, have triggered D3s um, uh, here at CPG. So that stuff does happen. Um, the way that you mitigate the outcome of it is a big part of like what what happens in the end, you know, like uh, your, your backcountry protocols with where you're spacing your people, where you do your ski cut, all those things are obviously like huge parts that are going to keep you, keep you safe and keep your guests safe on the uh, at the end of it all. But, um, I do think that, that it's an inevitable and, and being ready to talk about it and learn from the mistakes that made you got there are a, a big part of ski guiding and should be something that you should be ready to do. Yeah. And I would, I would only add to that, that we all know that, um, joyful skiing for many people, like a lot of people are totally happy, never stepping into avalanche train, but the majority of people, want to ski steeper stuff and not because it's avalanche train, but because that's where, that's where skiing is really fun. That's where the, the throttle is, is right at your fingertips. That's where the sort of wildness is that the, um, the thrill of an uncontrolled environment, those things are all things that people crave and, and, and congregate in skiing because of avalanches have the same habitat as that experience. And then we also know that avalanches are <clears throat> at their core have some really unpredictable um, and unknowable elements to them, right? The, the phrase that we're fond of using in avalanche education is that it's a wicked environment, or in other words, an environment where the feedback is irregular or inconsistent or non-existent. And, and I think the thing that <clears throat> every ski guide service probably does pretty well is communicate to its guests in the form of its liability waiver and the language there that avalanches are by their nature unpredictable and that you're entering that environment um, without certainty that we're going to be able to manage that risk. I don't think we're as good at telling ourselves that or we're telling you know our employees that and and we we work really hard to to make sure that we keep our eye on that ball on the on the um, on the true uncertainty on the, on the parts that are like proper unknowable uncertainty and, and managing that environment that doesn't always give us feedback and, and can quite the opposite through just combination of luck and, and good snow, like lure us into thinking that we're potentially way better at it than we actually are. And I say that, I say that also as somebody that just dedicates a huge amount of mental energy to, to doing it better and learning as much as I can and, and managing the risk to the, to the ma maximum extent. But I think at the same time, we just owe it to ourselves to remember that 
there's some real, there's some real inherent risk in what we're doing. Absolutely. You guys care to share a, a story about a lesson delivered and, and maybe some of the <laughs> subsequent lessons learned from that? I think I, I'm happy starting and, and, um, uh, you know, I've, I've had the closest call as a guide of anybody at CPG. Um, in 2011, I was fully buried in a, in a pretty large avalanche and I could go on and on about the different ways of looking at the, the mistakes that, um, that I made, that my partner made, that we made together, that the operation made. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways of, of looking at that day, but um, I'll, I'll distill it down to some, some nice takeaways and some, some lessons that are a little bit easier to learn. Um, the scene is that it had been, this was my third year of ski guiding and, and I had started leading the helicopter, which was, you know, I, I empirically was not experienced enough to be, to be doing that. But, um, but I, but I was doing it and, um, it was kind of that point in the season where you start getting tired and complacent and we had had a bunch of new snow. Um, there was good reason to believe that there is a buried surface or layer in these mountains that we were skiing in. And, and, um, I just, I just allowed a lack of feedback on it. We had skied a bunch of runs. We'd done a, a sort of normal um, coastal snowpack terrain progression. We'd done, I think, 11 runs before we <clears throat> went up onto this bigger piece of terrain. It was a, it was a run I hadn't skied before in which I, I sort of misassessed how, how big and steep it was. And I got up there and we had two groups up there and um, everybody was, the skiing was incredible. Everybody was frothing. I had a really bad feeling about being there and um, and my way of dealing with that bad feeling was, was to go back to my, um, my roots and dig a snow pit. And I thought, you know, I don't like this. I'm going to go dig. If I can dig here, I'll feel better about what we've got going on. And I, I went out there, <clears throat> I did a big ski cut out onto the slope and, um, and came back and took my skis off. And when I took my second ski off and stepped into the snow, I went uh, up to about my belly button and triggered a, a deep slab release that went, um, it broke about 30 feet above me, um, 30 feet to my, to skiers, right. And then 200 meters, uh, to my other side, the, the slab itself <clears throat> was, was, uh, about, a, we didn't actually like look at the, crown face, there's enough going on to not want to go back there. Um, but basically enough, enough to say that it was about a meter deep, about 200 meters wide. And then the slab itself was a meter deep, like all the way down to, to the bottom of the slope, essentially. So, you know, 400 vertical feet or so of, of a meter deep slab. And I was just a fully sitting duck. Um, the, the train I was on had a bit of a trench that it went through and that like um, river people will be familiar with like referring to a V wave. I went through a, I sat on top of the slab, like the slab didn't break up until it went through the V wave. And then <clears throat> I went through a V wave of snow that was, you know, call it 15 feet high, like big tall wave of snow and was under from that point on. And then shot out onto the glacier um, was ended up buried a couple feet deep. I did have an airbag on and that, that probably had a, a lot to do with my survival in that situation. 
Uh, my partner was really quick in, in getting down to me. He left the group on top. Um, the helicopter pilot fired up and actually landed on the, on the debris. And, and they both um, were able to dig me out without any, without any injury. I, I, uh, I peed my pants. I got like, um, I was, you know, asphyxiating, right. I was like getting a bunch of carbon dioxide build up around my face. Um, and you know, we, we quit that day and, um, I took a day off and then went back to it. It's a, it's a, <clears throat> an interesting place to get into an avalanche for a, a Chugach powder guide because it's a run that you can see from absolutely everywhere. So like, uh, it, I, I look at that piece of terrain all the time and I'm reminded of that experience all the time. And I think you could, you could spend an hour talking about the human factors that went into it. Um, the, the real, like the, the lesson that I actually learned on that one. And, and I think I have, I have actually learned this one. I actually, I, I don't really dig on steep slopes anymore. I really don't like, um, every once in a while I'll, I'll go out onto a slope and, and like leave my skis on and leave my backpack on and take my shovel out before I go out on slope and go poke around a little bit. But like, as far as, you know, taking my skis off when there's any chance of a, of a deep slab issue. I just, I just don't do it anymore. And, and I think what, um, what that really galvanized for me is, is the like a discomfort I have with, uh, the idea of like representative snow pits, because, um, I think you need to, you need to get good snow pits. You need to get good quality snow data. You need to get good quality test results. But in terms of applying that to a specific slope until you dig the pit on the specific slope, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities for error, but as soon as you're digging a pit on a, a slope, you're just taking a lot more risk than, than you would have otherwise. I have no idea how that would have ended up if I would have just skied it. You know, if I would have done another ski cut and skied it, we might well have skied eight groups through or eight people through there and not triggered an avalanche. Um, it was, uh, it, it took me jumping down into the snow with my skis off to, to trigger the failure. Um, so I, I, I dig a lot but I don't dig on steep slopes uh, and, and that's just a, a long-term takeaway. And then just on a practical level, um, you know, the other thing that, that I tell all of our guests and it, it's just a good reminder for people is I, I grabbed the hold of my collar of my jacket with my hand. And because I did that, I was able to kind of clear the snow away from my face when I came to a stop. I had no, I, I never tumbled. I never tomahawked. I was just under from like from the V wave all the way until the end, but I had no idea I was stopping until it was stopped. Right. Like I, that the idea that you're going to like realize that the thing's slowing down um, and, and then take action with your hands to clear your airway would not have worked in my case. And, uh, and so I just remind everybody like pull your airbag, grab a hold of your jacket or grab a hold of your backpack strap and, and hang on tight. You're saying just so your hand is right there. Right by your just so it's there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, what's because you can't move? It's, it's no joke. <laughs> you can't move. <laughs> right. Thanks for sharing that story. So, just to briefly talk about uh, all your guests are wearing airbag packs, and then is there some radio use, you know, amongst your guests? I know this is jumping around a little bit, but it's relevant. Yeah, no, we do. We, um, we put everybody in airbag packs and harnesses and, um, and in the BCA, uh, the BCA radios now. 
Um, and then every guest group has one of our of our guide radios. So all, all the guides are on a, a VHF frequency. Um, and then there's one guest in each group that's got one of those radios and then everybody's in, in airbags. And has BCA links. So you guys can talk to your guests as they're skiing. You just switch over onto the two-way channel and you can give yep. guidance to guests as they're skiing down and trying to avoid a hazard. Yeah, all the guides have two radios on, one to talk to other guides and one to talk to the guests. And um, for years, we just used like Motorola's or Baofeng's or whatever guides owned. And this last year, um, you know, we just decided to invest in a whole fleet of radios so that all of our guests would have that quality, quality comms experience. I think that's, that's one of the bigger, it's one of the bigger like risk mitigations you can make is having good comms with your people. Um, that's, that's really critical. Yet another transferable skill to the recreationist, I would I would argue. Yeah, I think so. Noticeable difference, I think, and in the uh, yeah the experience just of getting them into the good snow or or whatever on to, on top of the uh, added safety margin that you get, it's it's a uh, pretty important and really nice to have for everybody that comes here now. And again, circling back to kind of like including the guest in the decision making or at least not hiding it from them, right? They're getting more information. Nobody likes to be in that vacuum of knowledge, right? So um seems like you guys are doing a great job with that. Rich, do you have a, a, a an experience you'd like to share with the listeners where a lesson was delivered? I do. It doesn't involve me peeing my pants, though, unfortunately. <laughs> not quite as exciting as Henry's, but... Um, yeah, uh, I had experience last year, um, skiing on a snowpack, uh, with a deep slab instability after a pretty, uh, good shot of new snow, um, with, uh, seven guests and three guides. So we were skiing in two groups. Um, we were kind of pushed into there where we were skiing kind of due to conditions and weather, a bunch of the other terrain in other directions was beat up by the snow, kind of poor skiing. Um, and then in the terrain, we're in the Talkeetnas and it was a bunch of good snow, but with a, with a known, uh, you know, poor snowpack structure that we had seen earlier in the year. So, uh, we knew that going in and headed out and, you know, started on some green terrain with no overhead and found some good quality skiing. And, uh, we skied, you know, most of the day on some really easy short runs, uh, moved, moved up to something that had a steeper bite we could take and, uh, got an, that was a little bit, you know, maybe a mile or so away. Um, got a snow pit in a safe spot that was representative of the slope we wanted to ski and found the terrible, terrible snowpack, you know, it was like half two meters deep, half fast. It's half new snow. So, um, backed off of that kind of went back to the area we were skiing. Um, and that was pretty tracked up. Like we, you know, there wasn't a ton of options. Like Henry said, there's, there's not a ton of like mellow terrain in, in a, as much as you would want to see, you know, like, what would be nice. So, uh, we ended up getting pushed to some terrain that, um, had some, uh, overhead that we weren't skiing that we were pretty confident, um, couldn't hit like the pickup basically that we were using. Um, and, uh, we were kind of getting pushed into some, not as straightforward. Like this is obviously like green terrain getting pushed into some train that's kind of more in the margin of yellow. 
And around that time, there some other users showed up, some some other snow machines showed up, and um, it was about the time for us to go. Uh, we were still uh, on the last run. We did we decided to use this pickup that was kind of in the marginal zone, and uh, and uh, we, it was fine. We got to the bottom of our pickup. The snow machines didn't get that close to us or ski like or ride their machines right above us. They were they were being great uh, partners in the backcountry too. And then, uh, we went home and then, um, later that night, um, I, I, one of the snow machiners is actually someone that like through a couple of friends we knew, and he's, he sent us a video of him remote triggering, uh, a pretty big avalanche, D3 avalanche that crossed the Creek kind of, that we thought was keeping us safe. And, uh, it, it didn't hit the pickup that we were at, but it like, it, it, if he was like, whatever, the next little slope over that same side of the avalanche definitely would have like smoked the pickup and it could have taken out like the whole group and the helicopter, you know? Um, so, uh, and then the next day we went back to go ski in the same area just cause it was still, it was like the honey hole where we could like find some safe skiing and, and stay away from you know, stay out of some consequential terrain and notice that there was another, uh, a number of other avalanches that had either naturally occurred like late in the afternoon that day, or that were remotely triggered by the snow machines, like leaving the area. Um, so I think, I think there was a, a few lessons delivered on that. Um, a big one that I didn't talk about when I was explaining what happened is one of the guides voiced some concern when the other users were there that we should like rethink the pickup that they we were using. And, uh, you know, two of the guides, we talked about it real quick and kind of like said, Oh no, it's fine. We're just going to go do go down there and do the last one. Um, and, uh, that was a big mistake of the day that we didn't like, we didn't listen to the other guide. And like, you know, if, if another guide pulls a Trump card, or says like, no, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Um, even when it, it appeared at the time that it was like not that consequential of a decision because it was such green terrain that we were skiing on, um, that was still a mistake. And second, that our, our terrain assessment was incorrect. That like the size of avalanche that could come out of the adjacent slope that could cross the creek and, and, and hit our pickup, we were wrong about that. And I think that's, you know, you see that, I we see that, through the years that I've at CPG, we, we, we see that hap, hap, happen time and, you know, it happens time and time again. And uh, Henry had, did a pretty good talk at the, the Alaska um, saw a few years back about terrain uncertainty. And uh, it was just an, I guess, another, you know, a reminder that like, it's really hard to judge a slope, you know, the, then the slope wasn't like, it's not like it was a 3000 foot slope that was, that was above the pickup. It was probably only 400 feet. But when a meter deep avalanche comes out of that and it's a 35 degree slope, it's, that's all dry, cold snow. It's, it's going to go really far and be really fast and like, you know, have a big powder cloud. So, um, I think it's so fascinating that experiences like that really aid to the operational memory of an organization, right? Like now that, you know, from an experience like that, fortunately nobody was involved, but you just have a bit of a greater understanding of what that terrain is capable of. Right. We could, we could go on forever, but um, no, it's fun to, it, it's fun to muse about this stuff. And you know, that, that situation that Rich is describing the like, um, how far does the avalanche go? I mean, that's, that's something that really affects two groups of people. One is 
ski guides, particularly in the helicopter and the other ski tourers. Right. And, um, and I, I wish, I wish that we had better tools for figuring that out. Uh, you know, I wish that we had better tools, frankly, I, I, I think like the, the most valuable tool that there is in, in ski guiding is figuring out what the slope angle of a run is. And I don't think we have that great of tools even for knowing that. And, um, it's, it's just a, it's a good reminder that we've come a long way, but we really haven't been doing this for that long. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground left to cover in my career, your career, in the, the people who don't even have a career yet in their career. There's, there's a lot left to learn out there. One final question I have for you guys is um, concerns with something I, I think about quite often when heli ski guiding is the operational tempo, right? And and so, are there any times when you feel like uh, your bandwidth to to process incoming information is getting so stretched thin, and that you feel like the other guide guides in the field are probably thinking that same thing that it's necessary to just stop right and like get back on the same page and take take better control of that operational tempo is that something you ever think about yeah all the time and sometimes a fast tempo can really be at at your advantage um and in particular, on a, on a high hazard day, high hazard days in some ways are the easiest days because the feedback is there, the guests get it. And if you can just keep slaying low angle pow, run after run, it's, it's pretty easy to, to keep things going fast. And so that, that speed really is at your advantage. It's, it's in the transition periods that, that that fast tempo starts getting into trouble and when when you're starting to, to either need or want to open new terrain. Um, we've, we've employed a variety of tactics um, to slow things down over the years. I, uh, I'm a big fan of taking photos of people skiing and, you know, that's a, a part of their experience that they really like. I use it in a lot of situations. I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag on this, but there are a lot of times when I just personally need to slow down and have things like have time to think about where we're going and what we're doing next. And so I'll pick a, a really simple run with like one good photo opportunity on it. It might be just like a really short, steep piece that we can, we can set up a, sh- a shot. And in all that time to deal with that, I've got 20 minutes to really like settle down and think about what's going on. Um, the, another tactic that all of us use from time to time is to just set the helicopter down. Like um, I, nobody is good at, at um, cognitive processes when the, when the, when the Hobbs meter is turning, like uh, some people are better at it than others, but everybody is better at it when the the ship's on the ground. And so sometimes it's just a matter of like, okay, let's just find a safe place to sit down. Let's sit down and talk or think about it. Um, for a long time, we, we used an expression called the water picnic, like uh, just stop and have a water picnic, like get the groups together, like chill out for a second, get time to have a little guide powwow. We try really hard at like lunch when we sort of get the groups together to, to carve out five or 10 minutes to get the guides together to have an offline discussion and, and process. And then, and then to your point, there are days when, when there's just so much going on that, um, that you really need to just keep it simple and, and like reduce the amount of new input. I, I do think like on any given day, 
Um, whether it's a low hazard day where we're skiing big steep runs all over the place or, or a high hazard day or anything in between, there's, there are enough inputs to overwhelm anybody. Like you always have to triage your processing. And, and that's just, that's the reality of helicopter skiing. You have to be aware of so many different things happening at once that if at any point you start trying to think about any one of them in depth, you're going to, you're going to overload the system and a little spinny ball is going to come up in your, in your face. Um, and we manage that mostly by just practice and repetition and getting good and, you know, seeing, um, seeing the things without thinking about them, but that takes time and experience and, and practice and some amount of just ability. Um, but, but it's, it's a lot and there's a lot of stuff that you just, you can't know. So we, we do, we do our best to manage that through like a combination of tactics and practice. Nice. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we did have some, some listener questions out there. Uh, and, and I'll just sprinkle in a couple here. A great question from Sam Brown asks, um, just what's the best and worst part of working in the heli ski business in your opinion? The best part is heli skiing. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Uh, along with that, I think the the community at Chugach Powder Guides is one of the best parts about it for me. Um, it has a lot to do with the reason that I ended up in Girdwood. I met my wife here. Uh, one of my best friends are the people that I work with. So um, that is a great part about it. Um, the worst part about it? Oh, oh, it's pro. I mean, it's it's when when bad stuff happens, you know, whether it's it's a close call or or injuries or or anything like that. When like when like the unforeseen stuff happens that negatively affects guides or guests, uh, that can be that can be hard on you, and and you like relive those moments um, throughout your career on like the the, the bad stuff that's happened. Um, but I think that the the good parts that you have about it, like working with a good group of guides and, and mentors is what gets you through those rough parts. Um, yeah. Munter. Yeah. So same, absolutely the same. I mean, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to be part of, but it, it comes with a really high level of risk and um, risk to you personally, risk to your friends, risk to people that you might not know that well, but that you really care about. And, um, there's no, there's no doing it without that risk. And I think most of us believe that it's, it's worth that risk and we'll continue to do it in spite of that risk. But, um, that risk isn't fake. It's real stuff happens and, uh, it's, it's really hard when it does. All right, fellas. Well, thanks so much for the great conversation this morning. Really appreciate it. And, and we hope that you guys have a great, safe and fun season up there in Girdwood. All the best. Uh, thanks, Caleb. Thanks for the opportunity. And hope it snows where you are. Right. Yeah. Good chatting with Caleb. Good to see you, man. Yeah, cheers, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. What a hoot chatting with those guys and talking about heli skiing. Man, so much fun. I think it's pretty much the most fun you can have with your pants on. That one went into extra innings, but totally worth it. I'll make this brief. 
Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. And you could go the extra mile by writing a review and rating us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. Give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And our artwork, of course, was created by Mike T. You demand T. If you need any artwork done, you need to go to Mike. Check out his website, MikeT.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Music today was performed by Ketza and Sholin Dub, and those tracks can be found and purchased at Ketza.uk. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Wear your mask, go vote. <laughs>